Okay, let's try this again. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. The, um, there's kind of a, I think it's a habit of sorts where when you have, okay, I'll start it this way. <laughs> and that is, there's a long-standing, very ancient Jewish tradition called Shnai Mikra Echad Betargum. And what, essentially what that is, is a long, long-standing custom of reviewing the weekly Torah portion, reading it twice in the actual Hebrew text, and then the third, reading it via the translation. What translation are we talking about? It's the Aramaic translation, which itself is very, very ancient. One of the replacements is, is that instead of reading the Aramaic translation, some people just read the commentary of Rashi. But simply put, there's a custom where you have to read the Torah text of that week three times before the end of the week. Now, that's a, quite an uh, undertaking, there's no question. Some weeks I'm successful, some weeks I'm not, depending upon the uh, weight of work that I face. Um, but one of the things in particular I find is that my concentration is far stronger at the very beginning of the Torah portion than it is when I get to the end of it. <laughs> and so very often what happens is that the messages that we see or the idea that we might find at the end of the Torah portion is not nearly considered as much by us as it would be if it was at the beginning of the Torah portion. So I thought what I would do this week, which is a little counterintuitive and strange, I admit, is that I started from the end of the Torah portion and I worked my way in reverse. And I did it as a bit of a challenge to myself to ask, what would my intention or thoughts be about the end of the Torah portion if I brought the same kind of muster and attention that I have at the beginning? And so this is what I found. The concluding verse of the Torah portion, which is the first verse that I studied this week, is a particular mitzvah. The mitzvah commandment that we read in this week at the very end of the Torah portion is the mitzvah, the commandment of putting on tefillin. Rendered in English as tefillin, there's a Greek word for it, it's called phylacteries. Tefillin are those two leather boxes that are attached by leather straps. Within those black leather boxes, there are segments or pieces of Torah parchment hand-inscribed by a trained scribe. And there is a commandment that is held amongst the Jews, spoken of this week, at the very end of the Torah reading, spoken of this week, that they are to be put on every day. We have a commandment, of course, a commandment, excuse me, that we read about later, that we're supposed to put them on um, first thing in the morning, and that we do not put them on on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, hence I'm not wearing them but certainly tomorrow on Sunday, I will be wearing them. And I guess the question that came to my mind was, is that if you look also at artwork that comes from ancient Egypt, if you look at the hieroglyphics and other images that are on the surfaces of the great Egyptian pyramids and obelisks and other Egyptian arts to be found amongst the writings of the hieroglyphics, you often see Egyptians wearing what is called scarabs. Scarabs are the armbands and headbands. 
And this is, was a very common thing that, particularly that the elite of Egypt wore. I'm not the first person to discover this, of course. Nachum Sarna, who was a great biblical scholar, in his book called Exploring Exodus, points out that the scarab armbands and headbands that the Egyptians wore is disturbingly similar to the concept and the actuality of what tefillin are, of what tefillin are. And by the record, we can also say that tefillin, the wearing of phylacteries, is of profound antiquity. We have examples of tefillin that date back. Well, they've, they unearth examples of tefillin from Masada. So we have examples of tefillin that date back at least 2,000 years, and in truth even longer than that, because I believe they found some examples at Qumran, at the Dead Sea Scroll area, which means now we're talking 22, 2,300 years ago, and you can be sure, of course, they didn't discover them. So this is of great antiquity. So the thought I thought I would share with you on this beautiful morning is, is there a difference between the armbands and headbands, the scarabs that the Egyptians wore, and the tefillin that Jews wear. Is there a difference between them? Now, in the ancient world, we know that there was a great many rituals that people engaged in. We know that there were rituals that people engaged in for the sake of bringing rain down. We know that there were rituals regarding uh, the harvest and seeding. We know that there were rituals and prayer ceremonies for people who wanted to be fertile and have children. We know that there were rituals and prayers that people engaged in before war because they wanted military success. We know that there were rituals and prayers for people who wanted business success. And in each of these instances in the pagan world, in the ancient world, people engaged in these rituals because they were directly trying to affect and change and control the God that they were talking to to get the God to do what they wanted it to do. So if it's not raining, you pray to the rain God and you say, we want you to give us rain. And we're going to do this, that, and the other thing to make the rain fall. And so forth and so on. But it's interesting to note that in the Torah, while there is certainly a wide range of rituals and ceremonies, one of which we read this morning, which is the putting out of, of, the, of the tefillin, what's interesting to note is that each time it talks about putting tefillin on or giving a sacrifice or some other ritual, at no point in time does it ever say, at no point does it ever say that God will do such and such as a result of you doing this or that. In the imagination of the ancient world, it is a, you'll pardon me, it's a profound mutation of thought. That somehow, some way that people went, that the Jews introduced the idea that you can have rituals and ceremonies that speak to something but don't look to control something. In the ancient world, people did these rituals. They lit candles and gave sacrifices and did this, that, or the other thing because they were trying to control God. 
But in the Torah, what we find is that we do this, that, and the other thing, these rituals and these observances, not to control God, but to show our obedience to God. In short, I guess, there's been no end of explanations throughout many thousands of years of Jewish tradition of trying to explain why we observe the commandments that we do. I mean, there is certainly no end to the ink that has been spilled and the papers that have been used up by people trying to explain why we observe the Sabbath and why we eat kosher food, why we pray three times a day, why Jews have to have a quorum or a minion of people for public prayer. There's no end to the things that we have spoken and written about, about the imperative of studying Torah, about Jewish communal life, about observing the Jewish holidays. But in particular, what I want to share with you is that in and amongst all those ideas, there are two big schools of thought. There is, on one hand, explaining that the reason why we observe these commandments is this neo-Kabbalistic idea. I'm not going to go into it this morning. But I will share with you, it has some vibes to it that are eerily similar to some of the pagan concepts about control of the world and such. Rather, what I'd like to share with you this morning is the idea and interpretation of one of the most important Jewish philosophers who ever lived. His name was Moses Maimonides, known in Hebrew as the Rambam. It's an acronym. Born in Spain, he ran away from Spain and made his way to North Africa, then made his way to Egypt, where he ended up at, towards the end of his life. He wrote an enormous amount. And the Rambam, in both as a philosopher and a jurist, as a legal mind, dealt with a wide range of topics. But this is what he talks about when he talks about the reason why we do the things we do. He says that the reason why and the concern of the Torah is singular, and that is the Torah is concerned with thinking that the point of human life is spiritual, and that the Torah is concerned that you and I realize both the perfection and advancement of our spiritual needs. He says that the reason why that we observe commandments is not to control God, but that the reason why we observe commandments is to control ourselves. That the idea as to why we do the things that we do is not because we look in some way to change the behavior of God. I have to tell you, you know, there's a slew of jokes about this, but it's also real life stuff. I have walked into hospital rooms where there are people who are seriously ill, and I see that the family has taped a mezuzah to the bedpost. I know that often when I drive in a cab in Israel, which isn't something I'd recommend you do too often, but if you have to, um, it's not at all unusual that in an Israeli cab you'll find them, they have a mezuzah dangling from the uh, rear view mirror, or sometimes they've actually put it on the, along the right doorpost of the, of the car. I know that when people go through difficult times in their life, that there are rabbis who will say to them, you should have the mezuzahs checked in your home. Those mezuzot that we put on the doorpost, tradition says we should check them every seven years lest they become damaged as a result to weather. I know that some rabbis have told people that if you're having marriage troubles, 
you should check your ketubah, your marriage contract. Maybe there's an error in it. All these things, these ideas, are connected to the belief that in some way, that the bad things that happen to us, the ill things that befall us, in some way they could be fixed if we become more perfect in our observances. That the better that we become in our rituals and our observances, the more that we will be, will be rewarded by the good things that happen to us. But the Rambam, the Maimonides, says the exact opposite. He says that life is not formed by magic. Life is formed by reality. And that the way that we shape the reality of our life is not through a bag of tricks and not through magic, but through the real effort of what it takes to build a meaningful and good and purposeful life. It is realizing that life will occur the way that it does. But the thing that matters most in life is not what happens to us. What matters most in life is what we make of ourselves when things happen to us. According to the Rambam, to Maimonides, he offers this great, profound, existential idea. And that is the reason why we observe the mitzvot, why we eat kosher, why we put tefillin on, why we observe the Sabbath is because these are the long-standing tools that the Jews have developed as a way of reminding us what our real purpose on this world is. It's not to control the world. It's to make ourselves grow in the world. In the words of the great French philosopher who once said that there are some people who think that we are physical beings living in a, having a spiritual experience. But in truth, he said, we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. And when you realize that what is most true about your life are the things that you can't see in yourselves, but you know exist, the closer you are to understanding what we're supposed to be doing with our lives.